Today, I'm so pleased to have Ridian Cowley as our first guest of 2022. Ridian hails from Australia and has represented his country at the highest levels of race walking. This includes participating in two Olympic Games. We will discuss his experiences in the sport, but also Ridian is incredibly passionate about sustainability. We talk about how he attempts to perform at this high level all around the world while limiting his impact on the planet as best he can. Here is our conversation. So, uh, hello, Ridian. How are you today? Yeah, I'm going uh, pretty well. You couldn't be a better guest for the show because you're a sportsman who's into sustainability and the show is called Sustaining Sport. So, Thanks, yeah. It's, uh, hopefully, uh, I uh, fit, fit the bill as uh, I walk the talk. <laughs> walk the talk is, is a pretty strong pun to start given, uh, given your profession. But first things first, um, where does this podcast find you? Where are you right now? Ah, so at the moment, I'm in uh, Australia's uh, capital city, uh, Canberra, on uh, Ngunnawal country. Nice. Um, just uh, part of a uh, training camp here for uh, for the summer. Great. So your sporting background, you are a race walker. Uh, you have competed in world championships, the 2016 Summer Olympics in Rio, numerous world race walking cups, and of course, recently at the Summer Olympics in Tokyo. Uh, where I believe you finished eighth in the 50 meter walk. Yes. Uh, yeah. 50 kilometer walk. 50 yeah. meter, 50 kilometer walk. Yeah, 50. <laughs> <laughs> I, wish, I wish it was only 50 meters. It would have been over a lot. <laughs> Maybe that's my maximum walk. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about the uh, sport itself. Um, I think it's a sport that a lot, some people will have heard of, but most people don't know too much about what, um, what about this sport makes it specifically different from running? How do they stop you from running? Yeah, so I suppose uh, it's a it's a different form of, of locomotion. So instead of sort of like having a bit of a push off, you kind of your legs are pulling through. So it's it, it, I guess it's um, you know pretty distinctive sort of a funny looking hip wiggle, uh, hip wiggling sort of walk. Um, but yeah, the basically the rules of walking are that you should keep in contact with the ground uh, at all times. So when your front foot uh, lands, you know needs to land before your back foot takes off, and when also then when your front foot lands, it needs to be uh, straight at the knee until it passes under your body. And uh, we have a bunch of judges uh, placed around the track uh, to, to check on that and, and make sure you're doing the right thing. And if um, yeah, three judges at any time during the race think that you're not walking uh, legally, like you're breaking those rules, so you're losing contact with the ground or your knee's not straight, um, they'll uh, put in a, a red card and, and three of those uh, red cards get you... Um, disqualified so it's uh, it's an interesting combination of um sort of the physical side of things and the technical side of things uh, as an event it's, it's interesting you mentioned about the the contact on the ground because i don't think a lot of people will know even when that they themselves go running it's amazing how much time your feet are not in contact with the ground you're almost jumping from foot to foot mm-hmm. whereas what you guys are doing is obviously um you know you have to sort of technically almost focus on that yeah, I suppose uh, with, with race walking at the elite level, you're, you're going so fast, you're really pushing right up that line of you know, blurring it between what's walking and, and what's running. And so the, the judges need to be really specially trained. And, and because the rules um, as they are at the moment are that you have to be keeping contact with the ground to the uh, to the human eye, um, there's actually limitations to what the human eye can pick up and, and uh, often elite walkers 
have a little tiny amount of, of flight time, but just low enough that it can't actually be picked up um, just with your eyes in real time. Amazing. And yeah, I must say that reminds me of pretty much all sports I've ever heard of where um, we establish the rules and then over the years, athletes find a way to sort of push the push the boundaries. And of course, in some occasions in certain sports, they push them too far and we update the rules. But um, I suppose it would give you an edge if you could, you know, get it if that you are off the ground for that fraction of a second, but you can maintain within the judge's um, discretion, it'll give you that edge. Yeah, yeah. And that, that's often why the, the walks races are, are so long is just slows everyone down and it just means it's a bit easier for the judges and you're more likely to be to be walking easily during uh, the races yeah uh, and one of the elements i think i kind of like is that you know you could be watching it and seeing someone sort of take a strong lead and then suddenly he gets his uh, three red cards and and they're out and so it's like this is like, like adds a little extra um element of it like when you're watching the uh long distance running you're not expecting anyone to be disqualified for running but um yeah <laughs> Um, how, when did you get into the sport? Is this something they, they offered to you at school or, or like, you know, where, where did this start? Uh, well, I suppose, um, yeah, I, I've always enjoyed walking and, and I started doing it. Um, in Australia, we have this thing called good athletics. So you can start doing athletics at track and field when you're seven or eight years old. And, and um, yeah, you know, I suppose for me now, uh, competing at the international level, it's just a chance to make friends from all over the world, really, and uh, you know, you get to have a bit, a bit of a race, I guess, as a reason to go over there. And uh, other, other than that, yeah, you're just having, uh, yeah, meeting people and, and realizing that it doesn't matter where people are from, you know, we're all human and we all sort of tick in the same way. Yeah, so nice. Yeah, sort of got into it there, and, and then yeah, was able to continue doing it through my school years, and yeah, made my first Australian team in 2008 as a junior um, nice. from Russia. And I realized I could, you know, maybe travel and see a little bit more of the world that way and um, kept pushing from there. And um, I suppose I'm, I'm glad that I did. But then I suppose also thinking about that, so it's a lot of um, uh, greenhouse gas emissions associated with uh, flying around uh, halfway across the world. Yeah. Uh, you know, or twice a year. Yeah. Well, and we'll definitely get into that, um, your sort of sustainability passion uh, in a bit and how you bring those things together. Because um, that's a very interesting discussion. Question though, why why not other forms of athletics? Why not long distance running, for example? Why walking specifically? Uh, I mean, I like I like running. I'm I'm reasonably good at that as well. But um, I suppose uh, when you have an opportunity to compete, represent your country at the Olympics or even at a World Championships or uh, compared to the Olympics uh, tier of uh, event, you know, I I think one where you have more chance of, of doing that and more chance of succeeding at that, I guess, is, is a little bit of a, a motivation in terms of how you spend, spend your energies. But, um, yeah, definitely enjoy joining some uh, running races when I, uh, I'm at home and uh, frightening some of the, uh, the local runners because <laughs> it's, it's, it's good when I'm, when I'm a walker. It's, it's no stress. If I have a bad race, it's okay because I don't focus on it. But if I have a good running race and I beat some people, then uh, they lost to a walker. Yes, no, exactly. Um, they, 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 just because the the walkers choosing to use an event where they move a bit slower doesn't mean they 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 always move at that speed. Um, so that's great. Uh, in terms of training, what's what's the training schedule like? You know, what, like is it how frequently do you train? Is it how is it different from conventional athletics? Yeah, it's very similar to training for um, like a long distance run, like a marathon or a half marathon. So um, yeah, out there on the road. Uh, six or seven uh, days a week and, and particularly in big heavy training blocks like the training camp that I'm on at the, at the moment we'll be training twice a day on most of those days 
Um, and yeah, sort of this week is made up of, of various sessions, it might be long walks, might be intervals, might be a tempo or something like that, or it might even just be an easy walk. And yeah, when I'm in my heaviest training blocks, I might be getting up to 150 kilometers a week. Wow. But over the course of the year, when you include like table weeks or rest weeks after a championship, which is maybe closer to 100 k's a week. Wow. And what's the mental element of that like? Because, so, you know, if I think of, for example, a 100 meter runner, they're not spending too much time actually running. Um, if that, you know, it's sort of across the week, they're not spending hours sort of, you know, just being out there. So what's it like for you to spend just, you know, often hours and hours, both in training and in sort of competing with a lot of time to think, I guess? Yeah, I suppose it's just really good practice at, at keeping yourself relaxed. Um, you know, you want to be not wasting uh, energy, stressing about things that, uh, you can't do anything about particularly while you're yeah. racing but even especially when you're training and then for me one of the things I like about walking and running is you just get to go out and be outside for a few hours and just sort of connect in with the environment um you know check out if there's some uh, birds doing some funny stuff in some trees or you know checking in with the weather checking in with the seasons you know things flowering um yeah it's just just nice to be able to sort of disconnect from uh um, electronics as well. Um, you know, I work during the day as a um, in office administration, so I'm flying a computer most of the day. It's just nice to get rid of the screen time. Yeah, no, I, I fully hear that, and I must say, like, I'm definitely as guilty of it as anyone. But I, I feel like me and a lot of my um, my peers, you know, we almost can't disconnect. Like, if I have to walk 15 minutes up the road to get a bus, like those 15 minutes, like the urge to put on some music at least, or definitely put on a podcast, is so. Um, tempting, but then it it can be, you do need some time to disconnect. And obviously, if they're listening to my podcast, it's fine. Um, but <laughs> especially if it's some heavy news story or something like that, you know, instead of that, that 15 minutes being that sort of almost meditative experience that you've just described, it becomes, it can become like more negative energy, constant um, sort of pressure. So it's really cool that you've managed to sort of see the the mental benefits of it as almost as much as the physical. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose I've had a little bit of time to think about uh, that, especially with um, you know, lockdowns and the pandemic. You sort of have to assess why you like doing your sport if, when you're not sure if there's going to be an Olympics or you're not sure if there's going to be any competitions anytime in the next, uh, you know, however long. Um, yeah. And yeah, I sort of really realised that I just enjoy, even if all the social aspect is stripped away, I still just enjoy getting outside and having that, that time outside being active and, and disconnecting. Yeah, that's great. Um, so now let's talk about at least the most recent Olympics. Um, you know, that must have been, a, as you say, a bit of a tricky period when it was pushed a year. Um, obviously worried maybe if you can maintain the performance. Was, was that a, a difficult thing? And then also once you got there, was it um, as good as you would have hoped it to be? Uh, yeah, so I, I kind of you know, I couldn't really control whether the Olympics went ahead or not, but I just tried to find a sort of a mental approach of, being like, well, you know, if the Olympics does go ahead, I'll be ready. And if it doesn't go ahead, you know, I've still had the benefit of keeping active and going outside just because I enjoy it. Um, yeah. And that, that sort of kept me going along. And I think having the extra year um, worked well for me um, to step up to the 50-kilometer distance. That was actually uh, – I only did one 50-kilometer race before the Olympics to qualify for it. And then my second race was at the Olympics uh, over that distance. Yeah. Previously, I've raced more over 20 kilometers. So having that extra year, just cranking a whole bunch of mileage and, and get myself really prepared for the 50K 
was good and it worked out. Um, you know, I was able to finish eighth. That's far and away the best uh, performance I've had at an international championship uh, before. Um, and yeah, getting getting over there it was it was, I guess, in the Olympics as an athlete, you're always in a little bit of a bubble anyway. But it was like a super bubble because of COVID, so that was a little bit strange. And some athletes didn't cope well with that. Um, yeah, unfortunate. Unfortunate that I think because I like a lot of rice and I like Japan, probably you know, <laughs> I I was I guess better prepared to <laughs> to deal with it well, and, and maybe that um, helped my result uh, also. But um, yeah, definitely the tricky thing to in terms of preparation was coming from an Australian winter and trying to compete in a Japanese summer and not just a Japanese summer, but also, you know, climate change summers are getting hotter and, you know, you get one or two degrees um, change. You might not think that uh, means too much, but an extra one or two degrees on the the maximum temperatures in the day when you're trying to compete at an elite level can, um, yeah, be the difference between people going really fast and there being absolute carnage uh, on race day. So, um, yeah, that was definitely tricky to prepare for. Yeah, I can imagine. Like, you know, uh, I can't, one, I can't imagine myself walking 50 kilometers, but if I did, the difference between exactly two degrees a bit hotter and or not would be absolutely game changing. Um, and also for the audience's clarification, the two race walking distances, at least for men, I believe, are uh, the 20 kilometer and the 50 kilometer, whereas women only do the 20 kilometer, I think. Yeah, so that was correct um, as of the Olympic Games in Tokyo. But um, yes, going forward, the World Athletics has, has changed that. So now the men and the women both do a 20-kilometer and a 35-kilometer race. And they've okay. done that because I'm not too sure why they changed the distance, but the gender equity, making sure that there's the same number of events for men and for women, um, which, I think, which I think is important. Yeah, that's great. And I was, that was actually going to be my follow-up question of why there was that uh, change. But um, yeah, this this podcast is very much in favor of, of, of gender equality. So I, I like that they've sort of brought those two things together. Um, it's an, it's an interesting, it was an interesting distance change, right? Where the small, like the smaller event was 20 kilometers and the next bigger one was 50. So maybe they changed it to 35 to sort of yeah, stop the step up being so big. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure the thought process and that it's probably... Uh... <laughs> Something that can be in, a, in another conversation. I think there's it's not it's not universally loved or or even uh, uh, highly loved at all in, in the walking sport. We we okay. You know, the fifty kilometers is like quite a traditional event, so it was sort of quite uh, a bit of a rude shock, I think, for people to to lose that distance. Yeah, and it reminds me a little bit of you know the the, the length of a, a running marathon, for example, is obviously quite a if you put it into like kilometer terms, it's quite an arbitrary number. What is like 42 point something. Yeah. So you could easily just change it to 40 or to, or to 45, but then that would really annoy a lot of people because of the, exactly the traditions and the times and the paces that have been set um, and all the training that's gone into that specific distance. So I understand there being a little bit of pushback. Um, so yeah. Uh, and on that point, in terms of the future of the sport, what do you, what do you see? Is it growing? Do you, do you, uh, are you optimistic? Um, I think yeah, race walking uh, internationally is uh, one of the it's more, one of the most accessible sports. Is I think looking at yeah previous uh, championships, um, there's often there's medals from loads of different countries and loads of different continents. Um, so it's quite spread out. It's usually not too dominated by by one continent or one country. Although there was that period just before um, 
they were banned from, from competition where Russia was kind of dominating uh, the walks. I think that was kind of one of their target events with uh, their uh, doping program, which is a little bit uh, infamous. Yeah. Yeah, and walking, I, I guess, as, as a whole, um, it's quite accessible. Um, you know, even just taking a walk around uh, the block or your street, um, you know, people people walk to do lots of things. And, and yeah, I suppose World Athletics in particular is trying to make sure that that connection is strengthened for people because I suppose the walks of, as a, an event has historically been a little bit unsexy and, and unloved. And so just trying to tap into that. Uh, connection about I guess uh, rather than like structured uh, competition more like recreational exercise and uh, you know get that connection get people yep. active and moving um, so I'm, I'm interested to see how that goes um, that direction and strategy goes to the sport I think that has a little bit of a growth option but um, yeah it's as I said it's traditionally an un- unsexy event um, it's sort of like a bit of a niche uh, niche one but uh, I think it's Hopefully, yeah, still got a lot, lots of years to go. You know. Yeah, and of course, I don't know. It's a little bit of sort of in the eye of the beholder, right? And like I always say, with any sport, um, once you know more about it, and once you know that this the the technicalities and stuff, it's more interesting. So um, there's always that room. There's always that possibility that it 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 just spreads through not even just participation, but through audience, which is exciting. Um, and as for it being unsexy, I don't know. I mean, (laughs) you guys do move your hips a lot, so. Again, that's up to the audience to decide. Um, and yeah, just to uh, to touch on that uh, rushing doping thing you met, uh, mentioned, I, I do recall, um, I'm not going to try and remember his name, uh, but there was definitely an athlete who won the gold in, was it 2012? Yes. Um, and then was ret- retrospectively stripped of that. Was that a big shock to you? I suppose this was in your early years in the sport, but was that a big shock to you? Was it a big shock to the community? Uh, I guess it was kind of like an open secret that the Russians were not, altogether um i guess above board yeah uh, but the fact that something was done about it you know the individual athletes getting retrospectively banned i guess it had been happening for quite some time but i think the bigger shock was um the governing body actually doing something about it with uh, like the russian federation yeah as a whole and in that particular instance with the 2012 50 kilometer walk um it meant that uh, my uh, country mate, uh, Jared Talent, was upgraded from silver medal to a gold medal, which um, was highly deserved. And, and Jared's been a uh, big advocate for clean sport and competing fairly for, for years and years. Great. Yeah, and, and it's funny. He, he probably would have rather won it on the day, but to like, I would still take that to, to have been a silver medalist for however long it was before they chised, and then you realise now you're a gold medalist. That's amazing. Yeah, he did, he did a nice uh, medal ceremony uh, in uh, Melbourne on the um, steps of uh, Parliament um, in 2016 before he went to the Rio Olympic Games. So he did kind of get a nice moment. It's, it's not quite the same as like when you're there, but at least his yeah. uh, friends and family were able to attend. So that was yeah. Uh, nice. Yeah, that's that's great. And so, right, you mentioned clean and fair sport. Let's stay on the uh, aspect of clean and fair and talk about sustainability. Sustainability has obviously um, been a really big thing for you in the last couple of years. Uh, you're an eco athlete champion. You're part of the Sports Environment Alliance, I believe. You're an ambassador. Where did your passion for sustainability come from? Where did it start? Um, well, I suppose mm, to some extent it's, it has always been there like latently, but um, <laughs> particularly in 2019 20, we had in Australia what we call the Black Summer bushfires. So there was that 
period for like two or three months where basically the entire southeast of Australia was was on fire and mm. you know, in Sydney, in Canberra, and in Melbourne, were just blanketed by thick smoke for for weeks on end. Um, in Sydney's case, I think months on end. Um, you know, it was that thick that it was setting off smoke alarms inside buildings. And you know, we were all learning about masks before we had to learn about masks for COVID nineteen. So yeah, um, yeah, I think I think that for me was kind of like set off at. Uh, a bit of an alarm bell being like, well, okay, I've known for what, a decade at least that climate change is a problem that we need to deal with. But, you know, for me, for then it was like, well, it's a problem that's here now and we really, really need to deal with it. And I need to find whatever way I can to help, um, you know, get out and push that bus along so that hopefully we don't have like a catastrophic breakdown in in the near future. And it's funny how, it's 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 a shame, and I'm not saying you you were a case of this, but I think it's a, just a natural human tendency to be most influenced by the most extreme events. So it's a shame that almost from like a collective perspective, we we almost need more extreme events for people to observe for them to take it seriously. Even though we kind of um, have a very good understanding of of the that more even more extreme events are coming. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the psychology of it. Like um, you respond to a threat more when it's tangible. I think. We've kind of seen that a little bit with the COVID-19 um, pandemic as well. Um, you know, when you know that the stock the supermarkets, the shelves are empty and um, the hospitals are filling up, then you start to worry. But particularly in Australia, we had a few good years where lots of, part, lots of parts of the country basically didn't have COVID and were able to live more or less as normal, apart from the fact that we had closed borders and we're in a bubble. And, and so, yeah, for people, I guess it felt a little bit further away than it does at the moment. We're you know, having a, quite a big outbreak at the moment. Yeah, and I, 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 I think that that was always kind of the narrative with, with fighting climate change, at least sort of in the late 90s, early 2000s, that the scientists were already sort of saying, you know, we know what's coming. And the, the first defense of, for example, the fossil fuel industry is they question the science. They try and detach the credibility of the threat, not the credibility of the um, underlying processes. So... Uh, which I suppose from a lobbying perspective was a smart move, but in terms of our collective uh, fight against climate change, not so much of a smart move. Um, and it's funny you mentioned that because um, one of my next books that I'm planning on reading and I've brought up with me is uh, Merchants of Doubt, which basically has a look at that and how the fossil fuel industry borrowed techniques from the uh, cigarette industry basically to, to seed doubt and just slow down action. Yes. So I'm uh, looking forward to that. Yes, and I I always... I've had this a little bit um, recently where I, because I, I've been doing a bit of, um, a couple of my episodes have been about gambling, um, specifically kind of like targeted gambling advertising. And it, I sometimes admire in a weird way how, I suppose the best word is cunning some of these institutions can be. But the, the, of course, the downside is that they're not using their, you know, obviously significant resource and intellect to create a positive outcome for the collective. They're creating a positive outcome for themselves. Um, but I agree. There's, there's funny how what other industries we look over the history have used some very, very smart, very effective um, tools uh, that they sort of borrow from each other. And um, yeah, maybe it's time that the uh, those of us who are trying to pull us back the other way would use some of those those same tools. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting discussion. But how do you think sport can make uh, an impact in terms of tackling climate change? Um, well, yeah, there's, I guess, uh, a few 
like different attacks uh, that support can do. Um, certainly, I think uh, one of the big ones that, that I'm sort of think of is uh, the social license that um, sports, particularly some of those big professional codes, can uh, give to people that uh, are their sponsors. Um, yeah, you know, in uh, lots of sport around the world, uh, fossil fuel companies are big uh, sponsors of sports and it just normalises it, you know, having like a Shell or, or uh, Aramco uh, or, you know, any of those other um, big companies just there, you know, soaking in subconsciously, like, yep, you know, they're okay. And then you might even get like a, a nice little greenwashing uh, ad uh, involved during the broadcast, for example. So that's, I think that's definitely one where sport can kind of think about its uh, platform um, and and how that it affects like messaging on on a bigger scale. But um, even even then, like um, I think yeah, definitely one of the challenges that sports have is like their scope three emissions involved in flying around at, at international level to go and have uh, big competitions. Uh, that's definitely going to be a tricky one to get rid of. But um, yeah, I think definitely like making it part of the conversation and um, taking uh, visible actions and sort of showing people what they can do and, and what the benefit is, is um, yeah, definitely a big thing that sport can can do. Um, and that, yeah, I suppose that's more powerful at like, you know, big professional uh, leagues like the uh, EPL and, and whatnot um, can do compared to say like a race walker who outside of the Olympic Games, people are just like, what's that sport? Who's that? But at the same time, you know, I can still influence people within my community, people who know me, people in Melbourne, and you need people at all levels, not just like the mega stars, um, you know, joining that message and, and sort of doing and showing uh, what can happen. So I think yeah, just having that conversation and making sure that conversation is there and it's, it's pushing back against maybe some of the um, messages that might be coming through from you know, politicians that are... Um, that are owned or by um, fossil fuel companies that might give them big donations or yeah. fossil fuel companies themselves. It's just about, yeah, pushing back in that public sphere. Yeah, I, I suppose, that, you know, I'm also thinking like, you know, sports themselves, like measuring their emissions and re- visibly reducing them, you know, putting, for example, solar panels on stadiums, other things like that, they're, they're visible. Um, yeah, there's lots of lots of little actions as well that sports can take to make sure that they're actually cutting emissions and not just offsetting them and uh, using like magic accounting to uh, pretend that they're carbon neutral. Mm. Ah, yes, the power of magic accounting, and uh, <laughs> suddenly, so, 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 suddenly we don't have any emissions, but you know we've paid someone to have some emissions. But of course, the atmosphere doesn't care. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, you've touched on so many good themes there. Um, I definitely have learned probably even just in the last year doing this podcast to manage my expectations a bit. Um, you mentioned sort of corp, uh, like the likes of Aramco and stuff sponsoring sport. If I stopped watching all my favorite sports that Aramco sponsored, I, I don't think I'd have any sports to watch. Like they, they sponsor everything. So of course I, I sort of dream of a world where that's not the case, but um, in the short term, you know, they're not going to go away. So I, I almost agree with your approach that, this, there is still a lot we can do, if not, you know, having having them boycotted by tomorrow. And yeah, it's I th- I, th- I like your argument about sort of build your way up from that. You know, just having conversations with people, bringing it up, you know, seeing if people agree. Um, and yeah, even the even I say the likes of you, an Olympian, even the likes of me, not an Olympian, um, I hope can sort of have some kind of positive effect. 
Yeah, yeah, I think definitely like trying to amplify your um, impact is is important because if a sport, you know, becomes carbon neutral or an athlete becomes carbon neutral, um, you know, or becomes a vegan or does something that reduces their emissions but they don't talk about it, it's a really limited uh, impact because you're only one person out of 7 billion uh, or nearly 8 billion, I think, on the, on the planet. Yeah, your, your small change won't be anywhere near as big as influencing five or ten or a hundred more people to make their change and then getting them to influence uh, other people again to make their change. Yeah. It's, it's just about scalability. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, and, you know, I suppose that's always particularly encouraging when the real sort of, I don't know, if the, if the Cristiano Ronaldos of this world decided to, like, just fully dedicate themselves to... Um, uh, you know, more sustainable causes. Not that he's particularly unsustainable, but he seems to be quite neutral on the topic. Um, but yeah, he, like someone like with his reach, um, you know, if he if he persuaded what ten percent of his of his Instagram followers to cut down their emissions, it would be it would be quite quite something. Yeah, and I suppose also then that becomes a matter of like, are people able to uh, cut down their emissions? Um, I think when when you go through the process of looking at your own emissions and how do you cut them down. Uh, it becomes very clear it's like that there are some barriers to, to cutting some particular emissions. So in Australia, for example, we've got a really uh, poor fuel standard and we don't have any strategy for uh, increasing electric vehicle uh, intake. Um, we, and, and at the national level as well, we've got really not much of a strategy at all for, for decarbonising our electricity grid. So... If you can afford to buy your own solar panels and buy your own uh, new electric car when your old car um, gives up the ghost, good. But that's out of, out of reach for a lot of people. So um, yeah, you need to also look at how you can influence institutions to change their policies and make it easier for people to, to reduce their uh, environmental and carbon footprint. Yes. Yeah, and I saw some interesting, um, I suppose there would be philosophical arguments around this with regards to... Um, how people eat in sub-Saharan Africa, because a lot of um, communities are quite dependent on, for example, meat, which is obviously slightly higher, well, slightly, a lot higher emissions than um, plant-based food. But unfortunately, it's, of course, what's actually available to them. They sometimes just cannot access um, or even actively change uh, their diets to be entirely plant-based. And of course, relatively speaking, you know, Sub-Saharan sub Africa's emissions is nothing compared to the developed world. So yeah. um, there's there's some very interesting moral questions about how much we should be um, trying to promote veganism in Africa uh, versus, for example, looking at ourselves first. Yeah, and, and not only that, like Sub-Saharan Africa as an example, and, and other, well, I guess, uh, I guess you put it like less developed countries, probably more uh, susceptible to the impact of climate change and they've, they've definitely got less resources and infrastructure to adapt and, and deal with it and it's largely not their fault that climate change is happening anyway so um it's like yeah, there's lots of uh, layers of, of ethical um, issues to think about uh, with that yes and and we and one of the ones that comes up a, a bit as well is um, slightly close to um, closer to where I'm from in South Africa, where it's not really rainforest. It's much more savanna, which is not meant to be entirely trees. You can't just make a, like plant trees all the time. But then, you know, African land is a classic sort of um, carbon offset tool that that developed countries like to use. Um, but yeah, sometimes there just shouldn't be trees there, or else you disrupt the uh, um, the ecosystem. 
Yeah, reforestation is yeah, it's great, but um, if you if you plant the, tr- the wrong sorts of trees, that's it's not that great. And it also like for uh, old growth forests that have been done doing a really really good job of storing carbon for millions and millions of years. Old growth forests don't become old overnight. That takes no. hundreds, hundreds of years, and it's just not a substitute for for not burning stuff in the first place. No, you're fully, you're so right, and especially because we have all of these targets of, um, uh, of you know whatever carbon neutral by 2050, et cetera, et cetera. There's no way that we're going to s- turn you know X amount of land into a massive rainforest and carbon sink in that time. Um, so why don't we just put less in the sky? Um, on that topic of, you know, objectives for the future, uh, I know you signed the COP26 sport community manifesto. What was your sort of thinking behind that? And how would you say COP26 went? Um, yeah, look, I think COP26 was one of those things where there was incremental improvement, but incremental improvement at at this time when we need to urgently act is, is unfortunately still like losing. That's like me saying that well, I took 10 steps in the last minute in a 50-kilometre walk, so that's okay. I'm getting closer to the finish, but yeah, you know, you're not you're not going to win the race going at that sort of pace. Yeah, um, and you know, when you, we've only got one planet to live on, you you have to win the race. There's not really any alternative. Yes. Um, my my motivation behind that was, I think, yeah, sport historically, I think, has been not great at engaging on um, climate issues i think um yeah a lot of sports people feel like they need to be sort of pretty neutral on on issues because they um, don't want to bring politics uh, into it um and but i think yeah it's, it's a matter of such urgency that you, you need to to step up and, and get involved and um you know, I sh- I'm, sh- I'm sure that uh, there weren't many politicians there that, that saw the, the uh, sports uh, manifesto but at the same time, you know, people there, it's like, okay, yep, sports people are thinking about it. You know, scientists are thinking about it. Doctors are thinking about it. Parents, et cetera, all, the, all these groups. And, um, you know, if it inspires people and, and tells people that, okay, well, other groups are thinking about it. People that I identify with are thinking about it. It makes it easier for them to get on board and say, okay, well, I identify with these people and, and they're making a statement and they're making changes. So I'm going to uh, go and do what they're doing. So um, yeah, sport adding our voice to COP, I think was, was really important. Yes. And I, I was really um, happy to see that, that there was that angle to it. I was fortunately able to go to Glasgow because I'm currently based in the UK. So it wasn't that hard for me to get there. Um, and I must say, I was slightly demoralized by um, actually what was going on on the streets. I was only able to go to the, I think it was the second or first Wednesday, and it was like the greenwashing, anti-greenwashing day, which obviously was, you know, very relevant to what we've already been discussing. But I thought there was more journalists there than there were protesters. There were more people taking pictures of the protesters than protesting. Yeah, I suppose that's been a little bit of uh, an issue in, in the COVID years. It's really made uh, in-person organizing quite difficult, unless you're, I guess, a, an anti-vaxxer group. Um, those, those people don't yes. care too much. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely a challenge that um, yeah, I think a lot a lot of different environmental uh, organisations have uh, faced. Um, yeah, I, I think you can you can do a lot of things as alternatives, but um, nothing quite beats physically turning up. Yes, 
and then I like that you you signed the manifesto as a way of you contributing, even though you couldn't like it would have been very unsustainable for you to have made it for those uh, week or so. So um, uh, yeah, it was cool that you could contribute in some way as well. Um, and yeah, add 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 your voice to uh, add your voice that, like from a professional sports perspective to this to this issue because I, I like the idea that for, these making it a bit more formal um, sort of carries a bit more weight. Uh, and on that topic about uh, having to travel from Australia to the UK occasionally or anywhere else, how do, how do you sort of account for your travel in 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 with regards to your sustainability as well? Because of course, to be a world class athlete, you have to get around somehow. You you don't get a platform as an international athlete if you don't travel and race internationally. Yes. Um, but you know if you want to, so you know you can be as sustainable as you like, but you won't have that same platform. Um, yeah, and I, I guess at the moment, the least I can do is just make sure that I'm not flying unnecessarily or, or more than I need to. Um, yeah, we just sort of talked about the limitations of, of offsetting. Um, offsetting is, is something that uh, can be done. I, I know that there's you know, some more reputable offsetting uh, companies that um, sort of partner, particularly like in Australia, with sort of reforesting yeah, sort of rainforest or, or old woodlands on uh, marginal land, which again, that's not as good as absorbing carbon. Absorbing carbon is like high quality agricultural land, but it's it's better than nothing. Mm. Yeah, and and apart from that, I suppose the calculation, I guess, has to be that by you know giving yourself a reason to be doing the sport more than just you know to win a medal, and you sort of you talk about it and hopefully you can influence some change. That the emissions that you can influence emission reductions that you can influence hopefully um, can exceed the actual emissions that you spent to, to go and fly around to the sport. So, um, yeah, then we just have to kind of give the aviation industry a bit of a hurry up to find um, a uh, zero emissions alternative. So, right, I guess, maybe something like uh, green hydrogen um, you know, made from electricity generated from solar panels would yeah. be good. But, um yeah, they've got to get a rig on with that. And I suppose the good thing is that we can, there's so many other ways that we can easily um, decarbonize economies that we can focus on getting them done. And that buys us enough time to find alternative zero emissions fuels. Um, it's not something that we're insisting on having happen tomorrow, for example. Yes. Yeah. And the, the aviation industry in general is something I'm, I don't know a lot about, obviously from a scientific perspective, but I'm so curious about because, um, there's a lot of things we can do, as you say, to reduce our emissions, but I, I have no doubt in my mind that our, the human urge to sort of, um, fly across the world on holiday in 50 years will be the same as it is now, if not more. Um, and so exactly how do we, how do we even come close to achieving our goals while still acknowledging that that's something that humans want to do? There is that you mentioned the sort of innovation element, and I'm I'm very hopeful of that. But yeah, it's 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 one of the hardest ones I think in terms of, um, or at least when I when I'm trying to sort of discuss these topics with people, it's the, one of the hardest ones to uh, get them to. I don't want to say concede because that sounds like I'm accusing them of something. And I, and you know I I don't not yeah. fly. I still occasionally fly. So yeah, and then particularly in your case when it's your literally your career is dependent on it. Um, yeah, I guess it kind of needs to be a little bit of like mental gymnastics to to make it all work sometimes. But um, yeah, definitely, I think the big challenge is that um, politically uh, it's poisonous to even uh, consider the idea of degrowth. Um, 
So everyone kind of has, by default, then has to uh, go all in on the idea of decoupling economic activity from emissions, which, you know, it has to be completely decoupled in order for it to work. It can't be like mostly decoupled or partly decoupled. And um, yeah, it's going to prove to be a big challenge. So um, I, I think that'll it'd be interesting, I think, uh, to put it mildly, to see how that uh, transpires. But, but hopefully um, people can come up with a solution that, that actually works on the ground. Yes. And yeah, um, I mean, I did a um, my master's degree in sustainable development and I probably wrote, I don't know, half my essays about decoupling emissions from growth. But I was never asked to you know, even speculate one essay about should we always grow? So that's a yeah, that is for the economists out there. Um, that's another like highly interesting, but also very relevant um, theme. Uh, and then, yeah, on sort of one for some more final point of, um, I guess it's a, a lifestyle question, but with regards to sustainability, how do you um, manage your diet in terms of being a high performance athlete? And obviously, certain foods are higher in emissions. Uh, yeah, so um, I, I guess that's one of those other tricky things as well. Um, you know, there are a number of athletes out there who are vegan and are still able to perform at a high level, but uh, that does certainly make things a lot trickier. Uh, you know, you've got to think a lot harder about how you're um, getting the food in you need. Um, so I'm not myself uh, vegan, but at the same time, I do try to make a little bit of a conscious effort to just, you know, reduce my meat intake and just try to find some lower emissions uh, alternatives uh, to eat. So, um, you know, it's good to throw in some beans and uh, uh, whatnot as a substitution substitute sometimes but um yeah also i'm just thinking about things like food miles uh got an, i've got a nice community garden uh, nearby to me that um you know i can go and put my compost uh in there and i can see it being turned back into soil and then also um, you know spending some time volunteering there and you can sometimes buy um, the produce from there and you know that it's only had to travel maybe a kilometer um in a car at best or if you ride your bike there it's um yeah not even uh, using the petrol in a car so uh yeah you know that's uh, reduces all of the emissions with the supply uh, chain and i think also when, when you look at some of the issues that are being faced around the world at the moment with supply chains and uh in australia yeah, supermarkets uh that have longer supply chains that sometimes there's just not stuff on the shelf now um you know when you've got more local um smaller scale uh, stuff to, to help support that that uh, makes sure that yeah people can be a little bit more resilient in the case of um disasters whether that's a pandemic or whether that's a climate related disaster so um yes yeah, another thing that i think is is valuable um and yeah if you're composting your your, um, your food scraps they're not turning into methane or landfill so that's that's another bonus Yes. Um, and I must say, I, I'm, um, I have many interests in this world, but I'm also a compost enthusiast. Uh, we, ha we have our, our own little like, local compost out back. And yeah, that, that's a big factor for me. Um, I, you know, I don't want to sit, <laughs> even though I have a sustainability podcast, I can't sit on my high horse and say that I'm fully vegan. Um, I, I try to be when I'm cooking at home, but I, I find particularly social situations quite difficult in that regard. Um, but I think you made the point there. If if you if everyone reduced their meat consumption by, for example, ninety percent, then we'd you know we'd be in a much better position than a small population reducing it a hundred percent and then you know ostracizing anyone else who doesn't. So um, I think when when we're thinking about that, um, particularly like the developed wealthy countries, we 
so much meat. Like it's um, way more meat than we need to eat. So it's not like we're um, martyring ourselves by cutting our meat consumption. It's, it's just sort of like sort of reflecting and if you cut it, you're having a much more reasonable amount of, of meat. Um, you know, that's, that's still having a, a good impact. So, um, yeah, I think sometimes it can be hard to, to get people to agree to the message of like, oh, you need to cut back because it feels like it's making a sacrifice. Um, yeah. So trying to frame that message in, in, in a way that gets people on board and, and gets them sort of happy to do it rather than feeling like they're sort of being dragged, kicking and screaming to, screaming to do it is, I think, important. And it it's can be a little bit of a challenge. But, um, yeah, I think also just the nudge of like just reduce the a little bit once you've reduced eating meat a little bit it's easier to reduce it more rather than going from like 100 to zero overnight for example yes and i i like that phrase you used earlier i think you said um, the mental gymnastics i would extend that to maybe like the social gymnastics um of you know having these discussions and um i definitely can get better at it um and actually recently someone came into my life who i think has mastered the art of explaining their choices and the benefits of things like veganism without causing the social tension. So I think um, that might be sort of my objective of 2022 to learn that just that social skill about having these conversations. Um, right. So I think that covers us on the two main topics, which is sustainability and sport. However, I always like uh, to sort of end these things with a couple of quick fire questions, um, just to sort of maybe decompress a bit after some of the heavier topics. Uh, so yeah, I'll just dive into them. There are three of them. Um, what is one thing you learned about yourself during lockdown? Um, I suppose I already knew that I, uh, I'm a bit of a homebody, but um, yeah, just I guess le- learning um, about yeah how how much I like socialising and different ways to socialise, and and also just um, how much I like paying attention to to nature. I think is is important. Um, yeah, it was nice for me to watch seasons go. You know, I've got a fig tree that hangs over the back fence because I'm really lucky to have a neighbour that has a fig tree. And so sort of watching that get its fruit and then, you know, the leaves fall off and then comes back again in, in the spring. You know, that's it's just something nice about slowing down and sort of watching nature happen at nature's pace rather than, you know, the million miles a minute life that you can sometimes have uh, when, when you're uh, working. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. And I actually have a similar one that um, I live in London at the moment, but uh, I was fortunate to be able to spend uh, lockdown one. So I was back in 2020 um, in the countryside. And yeah, I, I guess I, I'd i forgotten how much I value sort of clean air. You know, you go for a jog outside and you don't end up with a sort of slight taste of of, of um, soot on your on your tongue, um, if I can say it that way. So yeah, that, that, that was, I would say I had a similar thing, just kind of re- having a little not a forced opportunity, but a, a nice opportunity to um, be back in nature. But I also acknowledge that I was very privileged to uh, have that, and a lot of people didn't. Um, so yeah, this, these quick fire questions are supposed to make me feel decompressed, not recompressed. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> qu- question two: uh, What is your what was your probably your favorite TV series of the last couple of years? Did you did anything get you through uh, the lockdowns or something like that? Uh, yeah, I suppose I wasn't really the one picking the TV series. My um, fiance, or now wife. Um, Congratulations! Made, finally managed to find a time to get married uh, um, at the end of last year. Uh, yeah, it's hard to get married during a lockdown, but uh, we got there. 
Very much so. Um, yeah, so she was more the one picking uh, what TV shows we were watching. There's a there's a good one on the Australian Broadcasting um, Corporation uh, called uh, Mad as Hell, which is um, looks like basically a comedian uh, take on things. But then also, um, yeah, we might have binge watched a whole bunch of Shit's Creek at the start of last year. So that was um, yes, yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. Shit's Creek really, really uh, has done the rounds in the last couple of years. That is a good one. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, as well, it's maybe an inter- interesting story when considering about how, I guess, wealthier people have higher um, emissions considering that, you know, they started the series uh, wealthy and then losing all their wealth. So, um, yeah, maybe one to think about. Uh, really compress you a bit again. Yeah, well, at least they have a bit of more uh, comedy comedy um, angle. Uh, and I must say, one or two of my previous uh, podcast episodes where it's kind of just me monologuing about something bad probably should add a bit more comedy because, you know, I, I even listen to it back and I'm like, wow, that's depressing. Um, <laughs> so credit to Schitt's Creek for, um, yeah, throwing in the laughs to what is also quite an interesting uh, discussion in itself. Um, all right, so final question. If you could have done any other sport that is not either athletics based or distance based, what would you have done? Uh, yeah, it's a good one. Usually, usually people don't have those qualifiers on the end, so I could just get away with saying uh, running. Um, mm. hmm. Yeah, I don't know because um, my hand-eye coordination is not um, brilliant, and uh, yeah, I kind of uh, like going all day. So to rule out distance based is, is really tough on me. <laughs> Maybe I. That was my strategy. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'd have to take up like uh, some sort of a turn-based uh, sport, uh, maybe chess or something. <laughs> I mean, chess is good. Uh, I would probably say chess is my, my best sport, but again, because it doesn't <laughs> involve that much getting around. So I think I'll go the opposite. Well, I, I'm terrible at chess, so um, I'd have to do a lot of practice <laughs> to get good at that. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I think I'll go the opposite. If, if I if I could have done, uh, maybe if, if I could have, I don't want to say if I could have been a professional sportsman because I don't know. I've I've tried many sports and professional sport was not my calling, but maybe I should take up a bit of race walking. Yeah, oh, it's a lot easier on your body than, than running. You're absorbing, I think, a quarter of the load through your um, ankles and knees when, when your foot hits the ground compared to running. So, um, yeah, it's quite a good one. And you get to slow down and enjoy uh, the scenery a little bit more Whereas when you're running. If you're going too fast, everything's just a blur. Yeah, well, that's a good note to end on. If, if anyone out there has one a need to maybe meditate a bit more and also has slightly uh, compromised knees, I think, uh, and you really want to get outside, maybe a race walk is a good compromise, not going for a, a full tilt sprint. Um, or, or even just like a slow amble, um, you know. Walking, <laughs> a slow walking does make you more creative. Um, you know, there's a good reason why we pace back and forth when we're thinking. So, uh, yeah, get out there and uh, get walking, I'd say. Yes, even if, as you say, even it is as a slow amble, because that's definitely my my speed. Uh, But anyway, uh, Ridian, thank you so much for your time. Really uh, appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's been a great conversation. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation with Ridian as much as I did. I will be focusing a bit more on interviews uh, on various themes in the coming weeks. But the sports betting series still has one or two episodes to come, so please look out for that. And yes, see you in the next episode of the Sustaining Sport podcast.